Good evening. I'm Malcolm Webb. Welcome to Profiles from IU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, musicians, and other people and get to know the person behind the persona. In 1861, an act of Congress created the Medal of Honor to recognize acts of military bravery. Because it was the only award available during the Civil War, nearly half of the less than 3,500 medals were awarded during that conflict. Today, there exist many military awards. However, the Medal of Honor is the highest honor that can be bestowed by the United States. It is awarded by the President personally in the name of Congress, which is why it is sometimes referred to as the Congressional Medal of Honor. The standard of heroism for the Medal of Honor is so high that less than 100 recipients of the award are alive today. And exactly one of those recipients currently resides in Indiana. He is retired Army Sergeant Sammy L. Davis, and he and his wife Dixie are our guests today on Profiles. Sergeant Davis, before I ask you to take us around the world to Kyle, Vietnam, for the benefit of those in our audience who might not be versed in military jargon, I have to ask you an odd question. Can you tell me the difference between a howitzer and a mortar? And can you tell me what a beehive round is? For our listeners, understanding this jargon will be very helpful later on in the story. Yes, sir. A mortar is usually 51 millimeter mortar. Uh, they're, they're small and light, and you can carry them with you, and the infantry carries them with you for mm -hmm. close combat. The howitzer is much larger. It's 105 millimeter. So we're talking it, about the diameter. The diameter, of the, yes, sir. Of the, of the, the round the of the mortar shell. is um, three inches around, but right. it's only 12 inches long, and that's including the fins and everything on it because it flies through the air, and usually they're only good for a couple hundred yards. The howitzer is much larger. It has an 18-inch long projectile. It's five inches in diameter, and it's good for seven miles. Uh, the beehive is one of the rounds that you can fire out of the 105 howitzer, and it effectively turns the 105 howitzer into a shotgun. According to the Geneva Convention, you may only fire the beehive round when you are in imminent danger of being overran. And the night of which we are speaking, there were 42 of us kids and 1,500 of the enemy. We thought we fell into that. I would increment. say clearly you were being overrun. Yes, sir. That night was November 18th, 1967. Tell us a little bit about uh, yourself back then, uh, who you were with. Set the stage and tell us what happened. Second Battalion, Fourth Artillery, Ninth Infantry Division. We had four guns that had been put on this operation. The, the artillery's mission is to prov always provide close and continuous support to the infantry. So we move basically with them and stay just far enough away to stay out of their way. They can still do their job, but we can fire very accurately. Okay, out so to the seven foot soldiers, the infantry is the foot soldiers with yes, sir. guns, infantry and is the our foot artillery. You guys are shooting the big guns to yes, support and them. And we're, we're, our sole purpose is there to support our infantry. If the enemy is attacking our foot soldiers, they call us on the radio and say, "Okay, we're at this grid coordinates. We need around here to help chase the enemy away." And that's we put it there. Okay. Uh, on the night of which we're speaking. We had been pulled out. the The Ninth Infantry Division was on a big push in the Mekong Delta the southernmost portion of South Vietnam. 
I had the Ninth Infantry Division were had actually almost linked hands and was walking across the thirty or forty miles of the of this air, the Plain of Reeds area, and they had run into a great deal of of the enemy. Uh, specifically, that night we ran into they ran into a reinforced heavy weapons battalion of North Vietnamese regular army. So they were extremely well outfitted and trained and prepared, and their mission was that they were going to take the four artillery pieces away from us, kill all of us, take our artillery, and then move on in to Saigon, which was the provincial capital. Uh, We did our best not to allow that to happen. Wow. Okay, so what happened that evening? We fired in support of the infantry. We landed a helicopter, Chinook helicopter, came in and set four guns down. There were four Chinook helicopters. And we only had four-man crew, which stateside you have an eight-man crew, but in Vietnam we were so short-handed we only had four-man crew. As uh, soon as we unhooked the strap from underneath the helicopter and the helicopter took off, we started firing because our infantry was just getting tore up by the enemy. And we fired that rate basically as fast as we could load the howitzer and fire it all day. Uh, about five o'clock, they, the enemy finally broke contact and moved back away from our in- infantry, so we were able to take a little bit of a break and police up the area and get things squared away. They, they had moved away from our infantry to the point that the infantry no longer required the artillery. Okay. They were still they were observing. A helicopter came in and landed behind us, and a major got out, and he wanted us to, he gathered us around. And like I say, there was only 42 of us, so it didn't take mm-hmm. but a minute to gather us. He said, I want you all to know that your probability of getting hit tonight is 100%. And he wow. got in his helicopter, and he flew off. Well, we looked at each other, the privates especially, we all looked at each other and thought, well, that's rather strange. Here come a major flying in, tell us we're going to get hit. We're in Vietnam. We get hit two or three times a week at least. Uh, what, what he did not tell us was that he had just flown in over a reinforced heavy weapons battalion. They could see them. They were only about two miles away from oh. and their line through the jungle, which when 1,500 people walk through the mud and the water, it leaves a trail. And they could see they were heading. They they knew where they were heading to us. For you, Uh, at two o'clock in the morning, they hit us, and because we did not know the extent of the enemy, we thought it was just another attack. You know, we were in a combat zone. We expected it, and it wasn't until they started massing 150 to 200 at a time would come running at my gun, trying to do their job as soldiers. And I was doing the best job I could to protect me and my buddies, and that's when we started firing the beehive round. Which a beehive round is a small flechette. It looks like a little arrow. The mm-hmm. diameter is about the size of a pencil lead, and it's got four little fins on it, and it's an inch and an eighth long. And there's 18,000 so like of them a, in one like round. Basically like a nail with fins on it. Like a little arrow. Yeah. And when you fire it, you set the, t- the time on the fuse to go off at, at the mo- as soon as it clears the end of the muzzle, it erupts and sends 18,000 little darts downrange, and it squares everything away. And that's the only thing that saved our life. I kept firing the beehive as, as long as I could find one. We only got to fire one round as a crew. Uh, when I fired that first round, and they, the enemy had set up a recoilless rifle right across the river from me, which was only about 
30 meters wide, and they shot my, they hit my gun and blew everybody off of it, knocked everybody unconscious, including myself. When I woke up, and there was enemy all around. So I thought, well, I better see if I can fire a beehive round. So I tried to find out the pieces uh, of the gun uh, to, to reload the howitzer uh, round itself. I had to find it because they we had everything all lined up. And when their artillery started coming in and blowing everything up, well, it just scattered all, all of our components. The powder, the shell casing, the round itself was just n- nothing was where we had left it. So I found the pieces as much as I could, started loading my piece. Mm-hmm. Well, my my sergeant, my mean old Sergeant Gant, he was the meanest old sergeant that I'd ever had met, and we figured that he was just so mean because he'd been in the Army all of his life. He was 27 years old, and that's why he was picking <laughs> he on was us. He, he'd just man. been in the Army all of his life, and he just liked picked on us, on us young kids. And he had taught me, taught us, to set the time fuse. Well, the, you have a big wrench that you set down over the fuse, and then you with this big long wrench. It's about 12 or 14 inches long, and you can go click, 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 and turn the time mechanism around till you get till you get it set to exactly to where you want it, to what time you want it. Right. And it was MA muzzle action is where you had to turn it all the way back around to. Well. Sergeant Gant had made us practice how to do this. He would blindfold us and make us count in our heads, click, 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 click around so often that I knew, looking back on it now, when I found that first round and then started crawling through the mud and water back up to my gun, I just turned it with my hand because I was farm kid. I'd been milking cows and I had good grip, and I just grabbed the fuse and just turned it. I didn't have to think because of the efforts of Sergeant Gant. And I fired that first round, and I seen that it really did a lot of good. Well, now I've got 1,500 people shooting at me, so I'm trying to keep an extremely low profile, you know, hide behind the gun. Uh, The bullets were bouncing off of it. The mortars were coming in and landing all around me. But I could see across the river that they were massing again and getting ready to do another mass assault wave. So I thought, well, maybe I can find one more round. So I crawled around back behind the gun where we had had all of our rounds stacked, trying to no, – there was 8 to 18 inches of water all around us. Wow. So the rounds were actually laying underneath the water, so I'd have to crawl around and feel for them. Then I'd find them, and then I had to find the powder which comes in little bags, and there's seven of these little bags sewn onto a string. And you lower the seven bags into the, the cartridge, which looks like a 22 shell, but it's 18 inches high. Okay. And you lower this down, and then you put the projectile on it, and then you load the whole piece. You actually so have to build your bullet you in have the to, field. Yes, while people are shooting at each, you. Each round. <laughs> yes, sir. In the water with yes, black powder, which can't get wet. Well, this is not actually black powder. Okay, All right. but it's it's a form. It's it's powder. But yes, sir, it can get wet. Okay, it just you should dry it out before you fire it again. Mm-hmm. But you didn't have that. luxury, I didn't have did that you? luxury, no, sir. So I loaded the, the. I remember when I fired the first round, and the enemy was coming up out of the water right in front of my gun. I mean, I I could have touched them, and I 
pulled the lanyard to fire the piece, and it didn't go off. And I just, I didn't know what I was going to do. At that point, I'd been shot in the back. I've been shot in the leg. Uh, I was burnt. My ribs were broke. My back was broken. So I wasn't in real good physical condition, but I wasn't going to quit trying. So that's why I fired the beehive. And I pulled the lanyard, and it didn't go off. It just kind of started jumping up and down the cannon. I could feel it vibrating, so it was trying to go off. It was all that wet powder. And as soon as it built up enough heat in the in the chamber that it's, it dried the powder, well, then it went off. And that's, wow, it rolled over me. Um, oh, the gun, the, the recoil of the gun rolled it over you? Yes, sir. Oh, wow. And that's that's what actually broke my back and crushed my ribs on the right side was when the gun run over me. It, wow. It <laughs> tore me up. So we, we, I, seen that it did some good. Well, I had a machine gun in my foxhole, so I started doing my job as a soldier trying to keep protect. We still had two guns and two gun crews that was behind me that was still trying to do their job and support the infantry. So I thought, well, if I don't do my job, my brothers don't have a chance. So I laid there and fired a thousand rounds from my from the machine gun, ran out of ammunition. I had about 12 clips from an M16 and I fired every round. How many, how many rounds are in a clip? You can hope put 20 in it, but normally you only put 18 because if you totally fill the, the clip, uh, sometimes when you get mud and everything you in them, jam. They'll, they'll jam. Yeah. So we learned to only put 18 in So I had roughly 180 rounds to fire at the enemy, and still they just kept coming. It was like I was in a nightmare. Now, this traumatic brain injury, because the, when they shot that rocket and hit my howitzer, it went off eight inches from my head. And wow. only the man above allowed me to escape that because it, it it hit here, and all I got was shrapnel, and I got burnt on my face and arms. Well, I'm counting several times when you shouldn't, by odds, be alive. Yes, sir. But you are, and you're continuing, you're continuing to press on. You're not giving up. You just keep keep firing. Well, you don't lose till you quit trying. Right. And I, that was one of the things that I kept asking. The man above was, sir, just let me do my job. I mean, of all the things I could have prayed for, I prayed, sir, just let me do my job. Let me protect my brothers. And that's what I kept doing. As when I had ran out of ammunition uh, for the small, for the M16 and for the M60 machine gun, uh, I seen one of the enemy coming down the riverbank, and he had an AK-47 and a 50-round drum. And he lowered it and started shooting at me, and he hit me in the leg. It rolled me in the mud. Mm -hmm. The the impact of the bullet just thump, 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 and rolled me. And as I was rolling, there was a tree that I had my M16 setting up next to. I had saved three bullets, two in the clip and one in the chamber. And as I rolled past my M16, I grabbed it, and I did my job as a soldier before he could shoot me again. So You were able to dispatch was, him before he killed you. That was how I got you. shot in the leg. This went on all night, the rest of the night. I had heard someone across the river shouting, don't shoot, I'm a GI. Well, in the past, when we had been fighting with the NVA, this is the North Vietnamese regular army, which were superbly trained, uh, we had learned that most of their cadre, 
their senior officers spoke better English than I did as a kid from <laughs> southern Indiana. And they would teach their troops to say in perfect diction, don't shoot, I'm a GI. Well, when you're in a combat situation and people's from both sides shooting all kinds of ammunition at each other, and someone from the other side, the in, where the enemy is supposed to be, says, hey, don't shoot, I'm a GI. Your natural instinct is you're going to stop shooting, and you're going to look to see if it's one of your brothers over there. And they would take advantage of that and shoot you. you. Wow. So I, I had heard that several times that night, and I had disregarded it because I, I'd already experienced that. We had a low opening flare. The, by this point, uh, the gunship was had been kicking out flares for us to light up the night, and it makes it just as bright as daylight. And flare opened low, and then when it popped, it's the really loud. And when it popped open, I, I I looked in that direction, and right underneath where the flare had opened up, they come down on little silk parachutes. parachutes. Yeah. I seen one of my brothers, Gwendell Holloway, from Stockton, California, standing there, and he was waving his boonie hat at me, saying, don't shoot, I'm a GI. And I just, it just, it, so broke, it, wasn't my, the enemy. it broke my heart. It was, know, uh, it I'd been firing beehive over him all night and shooting over him all night. Well, he was, well, in, he was in a foxhole. But, so I said, well, I've got to go get him. I, I knew I didn't have the physical strength because by this point I'd lost a unbelievable amount of blood and I was getting real weak and of course hurting and I mm-hmm. knew I just couldn't swim across the river so I thought well I'll get my air mattress so I found my my air that's what we were supposed to sleep on that was our bed and you I blew it up and there were holes all in it so I tied off the section I had about a 20 inch piece of air mattress that didn't have any holes in it that just happened to be up by the head where you blew it up mm-hmm. so i tied off the rest of it and i blew it up and sure enough it held air i slipped off into the water started making my way across the river you know the enemy is there all around me they're, they're actually going the other way in the, in the river i'm swimming across one way they're sw- wading across See? the other way and and you're swimming amongst them yes sir oh, but they gosh. didn't pay they didn't pay that much attention to me you know they were they were young soldiers just like I was doing what their sergeant had just told them and their sergeant had told him go over there and kill the enemy and that's what they were doing they weren't expecting they wasn't to be swimming toward them yes sir so when I made it to the river bank the other side of the river I stashed the air mattress up underneath some bushes and started making my way back to where I'd last seen Gwendell he was about 75 yards across the river and to my left so I started crawling towards him and the enemy would come and run right over me they were doing mass assault waves and i would lay there now there were a lot of of their dead that were laying there in the battlefield at this point so i would just i was laying amongst all of their you dead just also. Played dead during a wave so i just played dead as as when they would move across me well then i'd crawl some more finally when i reached the area i'd last seen Gwendell and i found a foxhole and there were three gis in it instead of just one uh, Gwendell was there, Jim Deister from Salina, Kansas, and Billy Ray Crawford from Alvin, Texas. And I thought, wow, it had taken me about oh 45 gosh. minutes to make this trip across the river to reach that foxhole on the other side. And I knew from the way my body felt that I couldn't make three trips, that I had to carry all three of my brothers at one time. So there again, I asked the man above just to give me the strength to do my job. 
And the man that we thought was dead, Jim Deister, he had been shot right through the head. Bullet went in this ear, came out this ear, and he had been shot in the chest also. There was no pulse, no no heartbeat at all, no respiration. But I wasn't going to leave him over there. I wanted to bring him back. So I pulled him up, laid him right across my shoulders with head hanging off one shoulder and one arm, or excuse me, one leg on each side of my arm. Mm-hmm. And then picked up Billy Ray, picked up Gwendale, and away we went. Gwendale still had three clips of ammunition for his M16. And I put one clip in each pocket, clip in the weapon, and I opened the sling up, and I hung the, the sling, just put it over my, on my head, so the M16 was hanging off of my head. And as I've been over and carried the guys, I would make 10, 20 yards before the enemy would start coming through again. Now, it took me a few, took me much longer to travel this 15 or 20 yards than what you would think because of, I was hurting and I was carrying three of my brothers, so I was moving pretty slow, but I was still moving. Yes, sir. And I would lay the guys down and lay on top of them, and the enemy would physically run right over us. They were doing their job going across the river to, to kill the GIs over there. And all four of you would just play dead? We'd just play dead. Dyson yes, actually not having to play at all because, as far as you know, he is dead. Yes, sir. At this point, we thought he was dead also. When they would pass, well, I would get up, carry him, pick him back up again, and away we would go. When I reached the area where I'd left the air mattress stuffed underneath the bushes, well, I found it. I thought, well, I'll take Dyster across first because – he couldn't hold on or nothing. I knew I couldn't take all three of the guys at once. So I laid Dyster on this little piece of air mattress, and his head was in the water. You know, he was mm-hmm. just laying over this 18-inch mm-hmm. piece of air mattress, and I swam across the river, which probably took five to seven minutes. I, don't, I, I didn't time it, but mm-hmm. I did it as quickly as possible. When I got to the other side, two of my brothers, Frank Gage and Bill Murray, jumped into the river which I thought I didn't know there was any of us left alive I thought at that point I thought I was the only one left alive but Bill and Frank jumped in and they helped get Dyster up out of the water and I told him I says Dyster's dead and he he looked dead Mm -hmm. Uh, but they went ahead and did their job and they started checking and later we found out that he he was indeed alive I immediately went back across the river and Billy Ray and Gwendale could both hang on. They're, they're, they were awake enough that they could hang on, and I just ferried them back across. Uh, when I got back to our side, now the enemy's doing their job this whole time. When I got back, well, Bill and Frank jumped in again and helped get the, the, my brothers up out of the water, and we squared them away medically like we had been trained, uh, bandaged them as much as we could. I could still see we had two howitzers that were still functioning and they they were behind us. You could see the flash of fire at night when they fire. Boom. So I thought, well, I'll go back there and see if I can do anything. You know, I, I can still set fuses because my arms were working pretty good. So I started making my way back to the other howitzers, and I came across my Mino sergeant, James Gant. And he had a big pile of white foam, pink foam, on his chest, which meant that he had a sucking chest wound. He had been shot in the chest. 
Well, he had taught us that for a second chest wound, you get your poncho, you tear off. A poncho is plasticized nylon raincoat, mm-hmm. basically. You get a piece of your poncho, tear out a section large enough to cover the wound. You clean the wound off as much as you can. Uh, put the plastic to seal it and then wrap a tight bandage around it to seal it off and then get them to a medic. And that's all, as a soldier, that's all you can do. So I found my, went and got, found my poncho, tore out a piece Tried to keep it clean as I crawled back to where Sergeant Gant was, took his shirt off, laid the poncho on the, on the wound, and sealed it off. And almost immediately, he started breathing out of his mouth because he had been oh. breathing out of that hole in, his, in yeah. his chest. Wow. And he started breathing and coughing up lots amount of blood. And he, he raised his hand. And I grabbed a hold of his hand, and I thought, wow, my sergeant's going to tell me what to do next, you know, because <laughs> I really needed to be told what was next by, by this point. But he couldn't talk. And he just, his eyes had started to clear up now because they were, they looked like they had milk in them. I mean, that sounds weird, but his eyes had looked like they had when he would open them. And now his eyes were starting to clear up. And he just kind of squeezed my hand, which made my heart feel good. And I pulled him to an area that was less deep of water. He had been weighing about half of his body depth had been laying in water. And I pulled him up on a little drier section. Uh, I bandaged him up, did what I could. I crawled back to the howitzers that were still functioning and did my best to help them. Uh, the enemy broke contact about 8, 8.15 in the morning. And by 9 o'clock, we were started getting dust-offs, helicopters that come in and take our wounded out. Uh, we, of course, we, the men that were wounded that we knew were going to live, we put on first. And then the last helicopter, we started loading our dead on. And I remember picking up Mr. Deister and carrying him over. And I laid him in the helicopter. There was six or eight other men there and just a regular Huey helicopter. And I... You know, I'm looking at my pile of brothers, and it just, it, my body quit. You know, I had done my job. What I'd been praying for had worked. I'd, I had done my job, and I just went thunk and passed out. And my guys picked me up and loaded me on that same helicopter. And so I went to the, back to the, the hospital with my brothers. And on the helicopter, the medic had seen blood and bubbles coming out of Jim Deister's chest wound and used his stethoscope and there was a heartbeat. It was only like 25 beats a minute, but there was still a heartbeat, very faint, and they started giving him fluids. And Mr. Deister is a well is well and alive today and lives in Salina, Kansas. And My goodness. I got he to survived. hold Jim Deister's grandbabies, which, which is an awesome, awesome feeling. That's an incredible Wendell story. Holloway lives in Stockton, California, and is doing relatively good. Uh, Billy Ray Crawford from Alvin, Texas, he survived the war, but he didn't survive the peace. That's an incredible story. The other, the there were twelve of us left standing that morning, out of the forty-two that started, and the other eleven men are the ones that put me in for this Medal of Honor. So I have tried to always wear it proudly for my brothers. Because I didn't do anything brave. I did my job. I, I took care of my brothers. You do for your brothers what you know they'll do for you. And that's all I did. I'm not a brave man. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Profiles on WFIU. 
I'm your host, Malcolm Webb, and my guest today is retired Army Sergeant Samuel Davis, the only Hoosier Medal of Honor winner who's alive today. Only 12 of you survived of the 47. Well, they weren't, the rest of them weren't dead. There were only 12 of us standing. Only 12 of you were standing. Yes, sir. How many ultimately did survive? A few years later when we had our first reunion, there were, there were seven of, of the eight, counting myself. Uh, today, when we gather, which we try to gather every year, uh, not everybody can make the gathering, so there's usually only four or five that can gather. Uh, but we still gather, and we still – the strange enough uh, – and news media ask this quite often. Well, you, do you, what do you talk about? Well, we don't normally talk about what happened that night. Right. We talk about our children. We talk about our grandchildren. We talk about the future rather than the past. Sure. They put you up for this award and was granted and awarded to you in a White House ceremony. Yes, sir. Lyndon Johnson. One year later, right? One year and one day. One year and one the day. The action took place on November the 18th, 1967. The Medal of Honor was awarded on November the 19th, 1968. What was that day like? Can you describe the ceremony and how you As felt? I was standing in front of the president receiving the Medal of Honor, I was so frightened. My legs were shaking so bad, I thought I was going to fall down. I had been very well trained on how to do my job as a soldier and ultimately earned the Medal of Honor. I'd never received any training how to go to the White House and meet the president. And that aspect of it was frightening. That I was scared. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were scared. Well, yes, sir. Well, how do you meet the president? You know, I mean, I just – and I was still a young man. I was just – well, I just turned 22. You would understand some irony in why this was somewhat amusing to me after what you've – after what you went through in earning the Medal of Honor, that you would now be scared. And I found out that Lyndon Johnson was just a good old Texan that uh, liked to fish and eat crawfish and catfish just like I did. He put you at ease. He, he did a very good job of doing that later. How did your life change after, after that? Well, they... Immediately, you get put on a, a speaking circuit going around to, the, at that point, military and then colleges and universities. Uh, I can now this, you have to remember this was the 68 69 time period, and there were a lot of protesting going on against the Vietnam War. Much of it right here in Indiana, yes, right here in Bloomington. In June of 1969, was a, that was one of the largest anti-war rallies at Berkeley College in California, and I was sent to speak at that rally. Uh, they had to allow me to speak because the college accepts government funds. So here was 250,000 students and, and citizens that were there for the big concert and the protest against Vietnam. Uh, I was to go on the stage immediately after Country Joe and the Fish if you're old enough to remember them. One, two, three, what are we fighting for? That was one of his big songs. And that was the song that he had played just before I went out on stage. Uh, General Westmoreland's rules to me was that I could not vary from the written word, which I had a written speech written by the Pentagon, basically proclaiming 
the greatness of the military and our efforts in Vietnam, which the students did not want to hear. Uh, and you I hadn't been given really good material for the for the audience, had you? Well, it, well I was speaking the truth, right? Uh, but they didn't want to hear it, and I could not vary from the written word, and I could not respond to the crowd. So I stood up there and I read my speech, and there, when I walked out on the stage, it was naturally a clean stage, and in just the the few minutes that it took to read the speech, when I turned to walk out, the beer bottles, wine bar bottles, garbage on the stage was from knee to thigh deep all around me. Wow. Uh, the, when a wine bottle hits you from being thrown out in the audience, it hurts, but I continued to do my job. It wasn't the bottles that hurt. It was what they were shouting that still, because that, the pain that the bottle caused went away years ago, but the words that they shouted still hurt my heart because it was obvious they did not understand that the reason that I went to Vietnam was to help a people be free. And in my opinion, freedom is always worth fighting for. But these young people did not, they didn't have enough life experience yet to understand that freedom is not free, that it has to be earned. So I gave my speech, I saluted the crowd, and I turned and walked off. And when I got to the back of the stage, there was, I believe, 10 steps going down the back of the stage. And I was about four steps down when a group of young ladies come running around the corner of the stage, and they were dressed in a traditional hippie garb, you know, the loose, mm -hmm. flowing, silken gowns and, you know, the long, greasy hair and so forth. And, and, you're, they, and you're dressed in I'm uniform? in my dress uniform, dress, dress uniform. blues. Okay. And they come running around the stage, and uh, as the look on their face, I thought, well, they've come around here to, to they're going to beat on me or do something. And I thought, well, I remember what General Westmoreland said. I couldn't react to the crowd. So I thought, well, my job, if they want to hit me, I'll, you know, I'm going to stand here and let them hit me. You know, that's part of my obligation to to my country. And did they? And they stopped at the foot of the stairway, and they said, one young lady said, Sergeant Davis. And I said, yes, ma'am. We, and she pointed to those that were behind her, we want you to know that we're here to protest the war, but not the warrior. I said, pardon me, ma'am? She said, we want you to know that we're here to protest the war, but not the warrior. I said, thank you, ma'am. And then they turned and walked off. And that's what I have carried in my heart for 45 years that it's okay to protest a war, but right. it's never acceptable to protest the warrior. You've brought along some music. Tell us a little bit about the music that you brought and, uh, and why we're going to play Shenandoah. Shenandoah was one of my sergeants, Johnston Dunlop's favorite song. He had been going to college in a university or in a college just outside of Washington, D.C. And it was a very liberal college, very good college, but a very liberal college even during the Vietnam War area. And he said that not everyone there had the depth of patriotism that he had in his heart. And he was very patriotic, so everybody and everybody knew that. So rather than having a physical confrontation with the hippies that would be protesting and saying bad things about America and about the military, he would get in his car, drive 70 miles straight west to the Shenandoah River Valley, and he would sit on this, on a little bluff overlooking 
the Shenandoah River and looked down into the river and he said, Sam, the water was so beautiful you could see trout swimming in the river and the breeze coming up this Shenandoah Valley was just always so soft and had just a faint hint of pine in it. And after I sat there for just 15 or 20 minutes, that, that soft breeze and the beauty of what I was seeing would just enlighten my heart, give my heart peace, give my, give my soul hope. And then I could get in the car and go back and face the, the hippies that were protesting what John thought was right. Uh, he encouraged me to, to play Shenandoah on my harmonica that my mother had sent. Well, my sergeant was killed in Vietnam. And when we dedicated the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., November 11th, 1982, I was one of the invited guest speakers. And I took my original harp that Mom had sent me to Washington, D.C. We arrived about midnight on the night of the 10th, got a hotel room. I wanted to go to the wall and find where my 31 guys are from Firebase Cudgel. I wanted to find where my sergeant, Johnston Dunlop, was on the wall. When I gave my respects to my guys, all from my guys from Cudgel are on panel 30 East, and their names are all right in a row wow. because it's chronological. That's how it's dated. Okay. And then I went to where Sergeant Dunlop's name is on the wall. He's on panel 50 East, and I found John's name, and I pulled out the harmonica, and I said, John, I'm going to play Shenandoah for you, brother. I hope that it... Let your heart rest, and I hope that it gives your soul peace. I've had the privilege of doing that usually several times a year for the last 45 years. It's, it's comforting to my soul, and it's started a tradition that no matter where I go when I'm in uniform, people ask me if I have my harmonica in my pocket. Uh, because when I tell the story and play Shenandoah, it helps give those that are listening hope and peace in their heart. And that's what I want.
You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Malcolm Webb, and my guest is retired Army Sergeant Sammy L. Davis, Indiana's only living Medal of Honor recipient. In 1994, Sergeant Davis again became a part of history when Ken Ralston, George Murphy, Stephen Rosenbaum, and Alan Hall won an Oscar for Best Visual Effects for their work in the film Forrest Gump. <laughs> their work, which was groundbreaking at the time, was to use special effects to place Forrest Gump, played by actor Tom Hanks, in scenes with actual historical figures. In the most famous scene, Forrest Gump is awarded the Medal of Honor by President Johnson. In order to create that scene in the movie, historical footage was taken from Sergeant Davis's award ceremony, and Tom Hanks's head was substituted for Sergeant Davis's through the use of special effects. The film went on to win not only the Special Effects Oscar, but five others, including Best Picture and Best Actor for Tom Hanks. How did you first learn that footage from your ceremony was going to be used in a Hollywood film? I got a call from the Pentagon which I just happened to know the young lieutenant that called. And he said, Sam, there's a, a, a movie group here that are wanting to, they want access to any and all footage that we have of you. I said, really? Well, what are they going to do? Well they're, well, they're going to make a movie. I said, well, what's the name of the movie? Well, we don't know. Well, when's the movie going to be released? Well, we don't know. The only thing that they knew was that they, they wanted any footage that they have concerning me. So as they, as the the movie company would send reports or call the Pentagon to tell them what they were doing with the movie and where it was at, well, they would call me and say, "Well, it's it's here, it's this, it's at this point, and now it's it's done. They're going to release it in so many months." But I didn't really know anything about it. So when the movie Forrest Gump came out, well, I went and seen the movie, and it's a good movie. It teaches people that you don't lose till you quit trying. As when the movie first opens and little Forrest is sitting there in the doctor's office and the doctor's, t- because of he had polio, which I had polio when I was 18 months old, but I, I recuperated very well with it. Mm-hmm. And they told little Forrest that, well, you're probably n- never going to be able to run and or walk without these braces. But because Forrest never quit trying, he did not lose. That was one of the things that I had told the lieutenant. If you can share with these movie people one of the lessons that I learned in Vietnam is the fact that you don't lose till you quit trying, I'd really appreciate it. So they did a good job of weaving that into the movie. Throughout, that's why actually that's what the whole movie is about. You don't lose till you quit trying. Right. What other connections have you had with the movie over the years? Have, have you been able to uh, meet any of the people involved in it? Well, yes, sir. Um, Tom Hanks and I have met many times. Uh, Gary Sinise and I have become very good for Lieutenant Dan mm-hmm. and I are very good friends. I wholeheartedly support Gary Sinise and his movement to help our wounded soldiers. Mm-hmm. And he is has repeatedly did fundraisers to build homes for our troops that are the most severely wounded. And it's it's an honor to take part in that. Gary Sinise is one of the most patriotic men I have ever met in my life, and it comes from his heart. He has a band, I believe. Lieutenant Dan Band. <laughs> That's great. You're wearing the medal today. 
appreciate you bringing it in. You were kind enough at an earlier meeting to allow me to hold that medal. And, and uh, one of the things that uh, you shared with me at that time was uh, that your medal shows more wear than some of the colleagues that you have uh, who are alive. Tell me a little bit about that. Upon occasion, when the Medal of Honor men gather, we have taken our medals off and put them on a table, like just you know, in a stack to take photographs because it looks awesome to see 50 or 60 or more Medal of Honors in a pile, the, the historical significance of it. Mm-hmm. And to get your medal back, well, you have to stop and look at each medal because our name's on the back of it because they all look exactly the same. I learned that my medal looks a little different because it's it's a little more rounded, a little more smooth. When I we do a great deal of traveling and speaking to schools and the military, but I'll go to an auditorium with 2,500 students in it, and I will take my medal off and let each student hold it because I think it's so important that each student feels a part of that medal. That's what makes it so unique because it represents them also. And if you watch them, they grab a hold of it and they rub it just like this. Mm-hmm. They, they rub Minerva, which is the Greek goddess of wisdom and of war. And she's the middle of the Army Medal of Honor. So my Minerva is much more polished and rounded than all the rest of them. Of, of the, because you've allowed all these kids to hold it over yes, the years. The FBI would prefer that I not take my medal off and let 2,500 people pass it around. Oh. Uh, there, are they worried that it would get well, stolen? Well, in the past, there have been instances where a metal has evaporated, has evaporated and uh-huh. nobody knew where it went until later. <laughs> and your metal actually did get stolen once, yes, sir, it did. but not by no, one sir. of the kids. It was stolen of the... out of the trunk of my car in Indianapolis. Dixie and I had been speaking to a corporation, and we got back to the hotel about 10 o'clock at night, and... They would prefer I not just leave the metal laying around someplace in a hotel room while you go out to eat or whatever. And they would ask if I would just put it in its box and put it in my briefcase. Now, they is the FBI. The FBI. Yes, sir. And the, the FBI is charged with watching over us, taking care of us, and ensuring because as a Medal of Honor recipient, the Al Qaeda has an award for any Medal of Honor recipient's head. Oh, so your life's in danger still. Oh, my goodness. Yes, sir. And there are other organizations that are equally evil <laughs> that would that would pay. So anyway, that's why the FBI watches over us. And so I, in uniform, took the metal off, put it in its box, put it in a briefcase, put the briefcase in the trunk of the car that was all locked, and then went up to the room, got up the next morning, put my uniform on, went downstairs to go to breakfast and put my metal on, and I went to the trunk of the car, and when I opened the trunk, Everything was gone out of the trunk of the car. So I called the FBI, and they got everything. It was, the metal was gone three nights, four days. But they did find it and get it back, and so this metal was stolen. And they returned it to you? Yes, sir. How'd they return it to you? Was it? Uh... We had a ceremony at the Indianapolis War Memorial. Really? Yes, sir. Who participated in that? Do you remember who? Pissed? Oh, it was a it was a large ceremony. Oh yes, sir, yes, sir, a very large ceremony with the the police that were involved in retrieving it, the firemen, 
that actually d- dove into the river where the man that had stolen it said he threw it in a river. Uh, the police and the firemen were there. I got to give all of them hugs and thank them, and uh, it, it was a great day. It was wow. a great day. Wow. And now you have it back, and the kids still still get to hold it. Yes, sir. They They need to hold it. They need to feel a part of it. Today you make a living as a motivational speaker. Tell me a little bit about the groups that you've spoken with and some of the things that have come out of those talks. Well, my wife Dixie and I travel all over the United States uh, speaking to corporations, to schools, to military. The uh, corporations are the ones that help fund because they do pay me to come speak and uh, then I use that money to go talk to schools because schools very seldom have funding to even pay for our airfare so it works out very well and usually it's by word of mouth when you talk to one group of people well they know a lot more people and they'll say wow you need to have Sergeant Samuel Davis come talk to your group <laughs> his, his message is you don't lose till you quit trying and duty honor country so we have had the privilege of addressing all kinds of private corporations and public corporations all over the United States. What kind of reactions have you have you gotten from that? It's been very interesting. We have from school kids, we have tubs and tubs of letters. They're probably made to send them by their teachers, but the little ones are always the best. They draw I and they it. make little military men and little howitzers. But there's a theme that runs through a lot of them that, and I remember one so specifically that made me cry, and it said, this was actually from a seventh grader, and he said, Sergeant Davis, today you have changed my life. And we get that also from people corporate. We do a lot of financial institutions where they they invite their clients, and a lot are military. Most are not. And it's a very, very interesting group. But some will come and just, each one wants to share a little bit of their own story. That's what makes all the sitting in airports and connecting between cities worthwhile when you realize what a change it's made in somebody's life. And it may be just that little spark of hope that somebody needs. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a story. Not everybody has a perfect life. And what Sam talks about is how his story actually relates to everybody. Everybody can do something. Everybody can be better. If you're just joining me, uh, this is Profiles on WFIU. Uh, my guest is retired Sergeant Samuel Davis and his, and wife, his wife Dixie. Dixie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> who is uh, not only his wife, but also manager of yes, sir. the work that you do and all the travel that you that you do around the world. How did you all meet? Did you meet prior to the Medal of Honor or something? We have such a great love story. Sam and I were both married. Not to each other. Well, he was married to his, well, after high school sweetheart. And I was married to a gentleman that was a three-tour hospital corpsman in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. He died from Agent Orange cancer. Sam's wife, Peggy, died from cancer. Uh, Tim passed away first. We lived in Texas. They lived in Illinois. But when your spouse is sick, you try every treatment that you ever hear about. 
and Tim was a professional singer, and he had uh, started with throat cancer. So we traveled all over the United States. You know, you hear about a cure here or um, something new there. And Peggy got sick probably three or four years later. Three years later, So we kept in touch with email. The reason that we all knew each other is that Tim was oftentimes entertainment where Sam was speaking. Um, Our big thing really was nutrition. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the thing that really helped the most. They both lived for a period of five years when they were expected for two or less. So we were very blessed. We both had really some of our best times during those that cancer period that we got to say everything that we ever needed to say. Mm-hmm. Well, one day after Peggy had passed away, I got an email from Sam that said, Dixie, how are you doing? And I just wrote back and said, I'm doing fine, because it had been like four years by then. And and so then we started emailing back and forth about what our kids were doing, what the grandkids. And then he said, I'm going to go to Skidmore, Missouri, which is a little tiny town in Missouri that has a Freedom Fest for families every year. He said, why don't you go? And I said, oh, I don't. I didn't want to go. But he, actually, he kept nagging me, pretty much. <laughs> and finally, he said, okay. I'll pay for the Air Force. I said, okay, I'll go. And we re-met there. We hadn't seen each other in at least 12 years. Oh, wow. At this and, point. And um, a year later, we got married there on stage with all of our friends and family. 2,500 of our best friends. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I forgot to mention is that the first time he actually called me, he was cleaning his desk. And now that we've been married for a very long time— that was a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. It's never happened again. <laughs> I'm a stacker. They're neat stacks, but I am a stacker. Anyway, a little he picked up a phone ledger, and a little Post-it note fell out. And in Peggy's handwriting, it said, call Dixie. And, and it had, had my phone, phone number, number on it. So he sat down and called me, and here we are today. So sometimes when you think your life is just going to be a grandma or a grandpa for the rest of your life, Our Heavenly Father has other plans for us. (laughs) Tell us about the last piece of music that you brought. Lucky old son is the summation of a good day. The man singing it, my brother, was Dixie's husband. And Tim would sing that at the end of the program. And it was just after gathering and talking with hundreds and thousands of, of veterans then Tim would, would do that performance. And it just always made your heart feel good and made you feel proud. And it, it would allow you to go back and rest. And that was one of the reasons why I brought it today was to share it with everyone. And I, I hope that when you hear Tim's voice and hear the words, that it will bring peace to your heart. Our guest today has been retired Army Sergeant Sammy L. Davis and his wife, Dixie. I want to thank you for coming. I want to thank you for what you've done for us today and what you've done for our country and for inspiring all of us. Thank you, brother. Well, I fussed with my woman, told for my kids. I sweat till I'm all wrinkled and gray. While that lucky old son Ain't got nothing to do Just roll around heaven all day 
that I'm crying Can't you see the raindrops Watching run down my face Send me the cloud With a silver line And take me away on up to paradise Show me that river Lead me across you can take my troubles, take them all away Then like that lucky old son I won't have nothing to do And I'll roll around heaven all day Lucky old son, I won't have nothing to do, and I'll roll around heaven all day. Then, like that lucky old son, I won't have nothing to do, and I'll roll around heaven all day. The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2013. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Pascash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.